Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome to another special Between Takes episode of Missing Frames. I'm your host, Sean Eastridge. We're hanging out on the Nerd Party Network over at thenerdparty.com. Make sure to check us out and follow us on Twitter at JoinNerdParty, like the Facebook page, The Nerd Party, and follow us on Instagram at The Nerd Party. In case you're not already aware, normally on Missing Frames, we watch all the movies we should have seen by this point in our lives, but every so often we like to take a break from that to do things like movie marathons, filmmaker interviews, all kinds of fun stuff. So in today's Between Takes episode, we're chatting with Robert Whitey, an incredible filmmaker who's done everything from acclaimed documentaries about the Marx Brothers to directing Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, no big deal. His latest documentary is entitled Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time. Whitey co-directed it with Don Argot, and it not only details the life of the author, but of Robert's wonderful friendship with him. He first approached Vonnegut about the documentary back in 1982, and now after all these years, what is that? I can't do math. 30 years? How old am I? Oh my god, that's such a long time. But after all this time, it's finally being released, which is so exciting. Kurt Vonnegut, I mean, he's one of my favorite, favorite writers. Uh, I've been a fan of his for years since I first read Slaughterhouse-Five back in 2011, and I've been anxiously awaiting this film ever since I donated to its Kickstarter back in 2015. I'm also a big Robert Whitey fan, so it was really an honor to chat with him about this amazing movie and the incredible person who inspired it. If you want to learn more about the film, make sure you go check out the website, vonnegutmovie.com. It's going to be in theaters this Friday, November 19th. It's also going to be on demand, so please, please check it out. It's a really, really beautiful film. You can also, if you want to, follow the film on Facebook and other social media platforms. You can go to Twitter. I think it's at vonnegutdoc, D-O-C. And you can also just search for Unstuck in Time on Facebook, and you will find the official Facebook page. You can stay up to date with all the news and updates about the film's release. I guess that's it. Let's get to it. I hope you enjoy listening. Now available to own on video cassette. I want you to know this is the only Kickstarter I've ever contributed to in my entire life. Does that make me a bad or a great person? Uh, no, it may, well, it depends. How much did you give? <laughs> for five gonna, for five bucks, I'm I'm cutting this off now. I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna let's you know, put I'll it let, this way. What was your What was your reward? My reward? I got the the postcards. Oh, okay, that was something. Yeah, see, see, so we can be you're, friends. Your Kickstarter dollars at work relatively relatively generous i was fresh out of college i was in my mid to late 20s is that the the idea that you're talking about the kickstarter campaign as though that was something way back in your past which it was is frightening because you know i started this i first wrote to vonnegut in 82 getting authorization to do this we started filming in 88 he died in 2007 i was still fiddling around with the film then i brought in don argot to co-direct with me we did the Kickstarter campaign in 2015. It was like, okay, now we can get this thing finished. That was six and a half years ago. 
<laughs> I was going to say, for me, I'm like, I've been waiting with bated breath to see this. And that's nothing compared to what you've been going through. Sure. Now, let me ask you, as, as a Kickstarter uh, contributor, yeah. was there ever a point where you thought, oh, this, is, this isn't going to happen? Who, who are we kidding? Uh, from they, the get-go. From the get-go. I was from like, the, who's, you, who's this Robert Whitey guy? Who does he think he is? You went in assuming that. I saw Kurt Vonnegut. I didn't ask questions. I donated money, and I didn't even think like, oh, wait a second. Is this ever going to happen? No, you guys did a great job keeping everybody up to date, and there was always this sense... Uh, I'll speak personally, and I'll go ahead and speak on behalf of the entire uh, Kickstarter community, even those who didn't donate, uh, that it felt very, there was this sense of love and affection. I don't know if you guys felt that, but you did a great job of keeping us up to date every step of the way. And even though it took six years for us, it took 30 or so years for you. If you yeah, want to feel really old, because we're already talking about making people feel old, I was born in 86. So you started filming this for about as long as I've been alive. Four years before you were born. Well, yeah. I, I, again, I approached him in 82. It was six years before I had any That's kind crazy. of seed money to get started. So you wrote, so, you wrote a letter to him and you said, I want to make a film about you. And did it was a letter correspondence or did you actually go to visit him before you even started filming? No, no. It was a good old fashioned typed up letter in an envelope with a stamp on it. And I sent it to him in 82. And I, my first film, I was 22 when I did my first film, which was my documentary on the Marx Brothers. And that had aired on PBS. And then I wrote him a, a couple of months later. And I said, you know, Mr. Vonnegut, you don't know me, but I did this film on the Marx Brothers because I'm a big fan of theirs. And I'm a big fan of yours. I'd like to do a film about you. And what happened was he happened to catch the Marx Brothers film on, on TV because he, like I, am a big fan of old comedies. In fact, that was one of our earliest bonding topics was talking about the Marx Brothers or Laurel and Hardy and W.C. Fields. So when I wrote to him, I wasn't just some 22 year old or 23 year old guy who I'd like to make a film about you. He viewed me as a professional who had made a film that he had liked. So that's why he wrote me back. And he said, uh, he said, I'm, I'm an author. My work is on the page. It's not on film. I don't know how you make a film about an author, but you're welcome to try. And here's my phone number, call me. And next time you're in New York, we'll get together. Now, I was such a Vonnegut, um, fan that imagine getting a letter from him saying here's my phone number call me it'd be like you know somebody who worshipped uh, Kerouac or Solinger I mean as a Vonnegut fan uh yes I completely yeah, understand yeah. yeah and then well you're feeling that you're feeling that thrill now talking to me I'm sure just see I mean but, absolutely just by association for sure yeah. I donated to the Robert Whitey Kickstarter not the the Von what are you talking that's about that's right well that'll be that'll be next but, uh <laughs> So next time I was in New York, which was later that year, I came to visit him. And um, so it was six years before I was able to raise any money to start filming. So that started in 88 and just continued on and off until a few years before he died in 2007. It was after his death that I felt really, I mean, the film was always at risk of not being completed during all that time because I never had financing. Like it, was, it was always out of my own pocket. That's what I was going to ask you, because obviously it went on for so long. And my understanding is you kind of did it sort of in your free time when you had time or when you had it money. It was a hobby project. Yeah. yeah. You know, if I had the time, I didn't have the money because if I had the time, it meant I wasn't working. And if I had the money, it meant I was working. So I didn't have the time. Right. But there were these pockets in between where I'd saved up some money and had a little hiatus, like, you know, between seasons and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Mm. So I do a little more filming with him. But you know, after he died, I was really kind of lost about how to go forward. 
And then it was a couple of mutual friends of Kurt's and mine who knew him, knew me, and said, you know, the story about you becoming such close friends with your literary idol, the subject of your film, and uh, the evolution of that friendship and how it affected the film and your struggle to make the film over the years, that story should be told as part of the film. You should wrap that up within the, the documentary, which I really hesitated to do because I, I didn't want to be on camera. Mm. I didn't want this to seem like an ego trip, like, oh, Kurt Vonnegut and I were such good right. friends. I hate that kind of thing. But it did seem to be the only way out, you know, and I'm a big believer in full disclosure. So the fact that the subject of my film had become such a good friend of mine, I mean, how do I leave that out? So the trick was figuring out how to do that. And then once the decision was made, and that's when I brought in Don Argett, a wonderful documentary filmmaker, because if I was going to be in the film, I didn't want to be filming interviews with myself or telling my own story. It's too aggrandizing. So I figure, all right, I'll bring someone else in. And um, I'll focus on the Vonnegut biography while he sort of tells the meta story. That helped give perspective, it sounds like, for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just helped me figure out how to tell the story, how to structure it. And so at the end of the day, the film is kind of a hybrid between our two strengths, because I've always done these biographical documentaries, and he's done more verite types of films. And so it's a combination of the two. And it it worked out. So I, I can look at this film and enjoy it and not cringe every time I'm I'm on screen just because I, the structure of it seems to work. I was going to ask you that because after so many years, and I'm sure there was a sense of excitement when you met your goal for Kickstarter. We, we ran it for a month. We, we got cut short a couple of days because I told my guys I'd put it up for a month, forgetting that it was February. So we lost like two or three oh, days no. right there. I think our goal was 250,000. The mm. first day we hit 50,000. So, oh, this is going to be a breeze. And then the second day was like 3,000. It's like, oh, I get it. This is going to be a roller coaster, (laughs) which it was. It was a nail biter. We hit 250 a few days before the end of the campaign and then got another 50. We made it to 300,000, which by the way, was enough to get the project moving again, but still not enough to really finish it. I mean, it's expensive to do these things, but it, it allowed us to arrive at a cut. And then the short version of the story is that IFC Films, the good people at IFC Films saw the cut and said, yeah, we want this. And then they gave me an advance, awesome. which helped me finish all of pro, you know, post-production and everything. But you must have felt some sense of like, after all these years and amassing so much footage and continually working on it. And you guys do such a great job of interweaving the stories, because like you said, the challenge is you feeling like, I don't want this to become an ego trip or something where I'm trying to shove myself into the limelight. And it doesn't right. feel like that at all. It feels very organic. And it's a beautiful story, very well told with great perspective. But I imagine the sense of pressure. There is a sense of celebration. We did it. We're making the movie. It's finally happening. But did you have this moment of like, oh God, now it's going to happen. I'm going to have to actually leave this project behind after so many years. No, No, I'm I'm happy to leave it behind. Make no (laughs) mistake about it. I'm happy to leave it behind. But what was interesting was that the Kickstarter thing was obviously good news because now we had some production funds to move forward. The the scary part was now I had people to answer to, whereas before I never did because it was all out of my own pocket. Mm. So, you know, now that, you know, even if somebody gave five bucks, I felt, you know, we, we owe them a film. So now the pressure was on. And then the years started to add up after the Kickstarter campaign. And I thought, oh God, you know, the natives are gonna get restless. I have to say the Kickstarter contributors have been very lovely, very supportive. 
there have been a couple nasty ones, but hey, what, what did you do? Take our money and- I think and I think, I think, think what you mean to say, uh, they've been very lovely and supportive, especially uh, this one Kickstarter backer, Sean Eastridge, who uh, was so generous and, and got postcards and was probably the greatest Kickstarter backer of any project. No. No, oh. he, he was a pain. But oh he does God. have some compromising photos of me. So I do have to do his, uh, his uh, podcast if he ever asks me. Uh, no, so it's been, it's been weird. But, you know, look, here's how I put it in perspective. And this is not an exclusive for you, unfortunately. I've said this to a couple of uh, people, but this will make it clear. When I first met with him in his home in New York, I was 23 years old and he was just coming up on his 60th birthday. And I would refer to him as the old man, you know, affectionately, like, hey, I'm going to have lunch with the old man when I go to New York. The film is now finished and I'm 62. I'm two, <laughs> I'm two years older than the old man was when I first, when this little brash kid sat down with him and said, I, you know, I, I want to do this movie. Um, so it, it, it's been two thirds of my life. And um, I, I've said, you know, I don't know what my life is going to feel like when this film is behind me, but I'm really anxious to find out. Mm. And, um, but there will be some sense of withdrawal. I'm already finding now that if I come across something of his that I didn't know about or something on YouTube or, or uh, something that he wrote. I'm You're filing it away. You're like, I got to, yes. oh, wait a second. I can't. Yes. I'm thinking, how can I work this? I wonder what, and then it's like, Bob, the film is finished, knock it off. So I mean, so you is, could take a, you could take a Peter Jackson, George Lucas approach and it'll never be yeah. over. You just make continuous cuts of yeah. it. Yeah, so I'm going through that decompression phase right now, but I'm really, I mean, ultimately it's a relief when I realize I don't have to figure out how to work this into the film. It's right. done. There's one thing I came across that I really kicked myself that I didn't find it earlier. That would have been something nice to include, but everything else is, you know, I look at the film now and I'm I'm satisfied and it feels finished. But it's you know earlier you used the word organic, which I was pleased to hear because you're the second person today who's used that. And I'm doing all these interviews in reference to the inclusion of my story in the film. Yeah. And it's this it's the word that I used that I aspired to when I'd have conversations with Don is I'd say this has to feel organic. And, you know, we, we tried variations of using me. And basically the debate went like this. I kept saying less of me, less of me. And Don kept saying, no, more of you, more of you. We were trying to get that balance right because, you know, at first there's a little bit of me and then I disappear for a half hour and then I reappear and people will say, well, you know, the concept is nice, but you, you disappeared and we forgot about it. And then it's kind of shocking when you, when you reappear. So we try to get that balance and the phrase that I was using at the time was I said, you know, the, it seems to work as a structural device, but we haven't stuck the landing yet. Mm -hmm. And we just kept working on it, working on it. And then finally I felt, okay, that's it. And, and people have said, you really stuck the landing. So you it's, did, yeah. it's, it's gratifying, but um, you know, it's been a, been a long road. Yeah. Well, that's what it felt like. It felt very much like uh, every time I was thinking in the back of my mind, like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Where's, where's Bob? And that's also a crazy thing to think, uh, you know, as a Kurt Vonnegut fan watching a Kurt Vonnegut documentary to be thinking about your story and to think about like, oh, I want to see more about him. That's an incredible accomplishment in general. Like, I, I know it's weird to kind of think of it that way, but I felt your openness and your willingness to be vulnerable and to allow yourself to be a part of this really, really enriches the film in a, an incredible way. Well, thank you. I think it's a way in for people because... And, you know, Vonnegut was not a conventional writer, so to speak. Mm. So he deserves something other than a conventional sort of PBS style documentary. So also, also you know, 
the people who were talking me into this, being in the film, were people who knew Vonnegut's work. And they said, you know, that's how Vonnegut would have approached mm. it. And I realized yeah, that's it's right. True. You know, if he got stuck in how to advance the story, he would put himself into the book and interact with his characters the way he did with Kilgore Trout and Breakfast of Champions, does that a little bit in Slaughterhouse Five. And then Timequake, which is really the great metaphor for our film, was a book that he was stuck on for 10 years and couldn't figure out how to do it. And then he wound up, you know, creating this sort of interstitial material between the chapters, explaining the struggle and finishing the book and whatever he did that day, he went out to buy stamps or whatever. So the, the, the book ultimately, you know, like I'll say half of it roughly is the story that he intended to tell. And the other half is him telling you about the difficulties he's having in writing the book. So that's- Now, I thought you were gonna say the big breakthrough of Time Quick was when he realized I've got to put Bob in this. And then that's what opened up the floodgates when you yeah. finally, your cameo there, appearance there that rocked the world. When I first started reading Vonnegut in high school, he, I think I think in the uh, forward to Wampeter's Foaming Grand Falloons, he mentions a, 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 a somebody, a, a young guy who had written him a fan letter. And I think <laughs> he mentions it by name. I thought, wow, that guy, how- cool for him to be in a Vonnegut book. What a, what a dream. And then his final novel, Timequake in, in 97, you know, once we met, he would send me early pressings of his books, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, un, un, you know, uncorrected galleys or whatever. Sometimes they were bound. The, the books were basically finished by then, but, mm. but it must've been like two in the morning. I was reading Timequake before it was published. And these were just like Xerox pages, loose pages that I'd read one, put it aside, read the next one, put it aside. And, you know, towards the end of the book, he's rewriting about this clam bake in honor of Kilgore Trout. Uh, and he's telling you, I think in Newport, Rhode Island, and he's telling you about all the people at the clam bake. Well, and they're basically all of his friends. He's sort of paying tribute to right. his friends knowing it's his final book. And there was my name and I <laughs> quite freaked out. You know, I was, I was attending the clam bake and he says, you know, Robert Whitey wasn't there to see me. He wanted to a long last meet Kilgore Trout. So. I was in the book and it was quite crazy. I, I talk about it in the film and, and the facts I sent him the next day, we see the facts. Yeah, and Kurt's work is so extensive. His bibliography is so like, I mean, he's written so much and over so many years, but what? how tough was it to, you, you do it really well, but there's a sense that obviously Slaughterhouse-Five is kind of the central piece of his career because it was, that was the big breakthrough for him. Sure. Was there any other book that you were like, I really, I know Breakfast of Champions is a big one for you. That was your first, is right. that still your favorite? Would you say, is that your favorite? I don't know if it's my favorite. It holds a special place in my heart, like a first love yeah. because it was the book that introduced me to his work. And it's a very funny book and a perfect book for a high school uh, sort of um, <laughs> iconoclastic or rebellious high school student to read. Um, yeah. Was there any other book that you would have like been like, let's give a little bit more time to this one as well? Well, not necessarily, but in general, you know, the film is not a deep dive into his works. Although yeah. again, there's a handful of books that we spend some time with, um, certainly Slaughterhouse-Five, a little bit with God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater with the introduction of Kilgore Trout, uh, Time Quake, his final book, which was not a novel, but a collection of essays, A Man Without a Country. But when I would have early screenings of the film for friends of mine, I would ask them afterwards, do you feel cheated that there wasn't more about the books? Did you want to hear more about the books? And to a person, they all said no, because they thought there was enough story between Vonnegut's biography, which is very interesting. And again, this meta element 
they were entertained and felt that they didn't need to learn more about the books themselves. They're, they're almost all referenced at some point, but we don't, you know, Cat's Cradle, to answer your question directly, Cat's Cradle, I would have liked to have dug into a little bit more. And, and we did. And there's, um, it just it wound up on the cutting room floor, sadly. But, you know, I went through all of the original typed, you know, hand typed manuscripts of all of his books and his short stories at the Lilly Library at the uh, uh, Indiana University in Bloomington, where they have all of his papers. And, um, he had written an early short story called Ice Nine. Now you as a Vonnegut mm. film would know the connection of Ice Nine to Cat's Cradle. Yeah. And so he wrote it as a short story and um, tried to sell it and he couldn't sell it. Finally, somebody wanted to buy it for like $300 and finally said, eh, you know what, I'm gonna work on this a bit more. And that became Cat's <laughs> Cradle. And if he had sold that story to that, it was a science fiction magazine, Cat's Cradle probably never would have been written and and there was you know stuff in the film about how the whole concept of ice nine really came out of conversations with his brother who was a, a, a research scientist at general electric and so uh, you know that's the problem unless you're doing a you know netflix miniseries stuff winds up in the cutting room floor but i'm, I'm happy ultimately with the final choices uh, you and me both i don't think it hurts the film at all it's really lovely and there's one story in particular I really enjoyed and the way you kind of tell the story of your friendship with Kurt and how you kind of really in a way became part of the family and the story that I that really kind of felt that way with was Nanette talking about how you were kind of invited and she was afraid like she thought she was going to get quality time with her dad and then she's like what's this filmmaker doing her and I wanted to talk a little bit about your relationship with the family and just I, I love that that <laughs> the, the her kind of being saying like oh I was really angry and upset that I, I thought I was going to get this time and then you were going to be there and then it wasn't so bad yeah she says but it all worked out yeah and the <laughs> that is she and I to this day are very close friends I mean we are really like brother and sister she's the closest thing I've had to a surrogate sister in my life and we're very tight and I'm very close with his daughter Edie as well although Nanny and I are especially close mm. um the son Mark you know we, we get along we're friendly but we don't you know we don't stay in touch, we don't call each other to chat. And even the the nephews, one of his nephews, Steve Adams, I've actually known for, for years. So I feel very tied into the family and they do feel like an extended family of mine to a certain degree. Uh, Nanny and Edie will both be at the um, premiere, which is part of uh, Doc NYC on uh, November 11th, mm. which happens to be Kurt's 99th birthday, the eve of his centennial. Um, so I'm so thrilled to have them there and um have they you know, have they they've seen the film yet they have yeah everybody every, everybody in the family has signed off with their approval that's great uh, and i'm hearing from grandkids too who didn't know him that oh, well wow. or remember him from their childhood who were so thrilled to have this sort of chronicle of of his life and see photos of their own parents when they were kids and all that so it's it's, it's quite triumphant that way but um yes we talk about in the film for my wedding for a wedding present and Vonnegut was greatly encouraged me to marry my then girlfriend, who's now my wife of 24 years. For our wedding present, he gave us a pair of Victorian candlesticks. He said, identical to the ones his father gave him. And he in turn has given them to all of his kids on special occasions, like weddings and that sort of thing. So 
he says that it's basically we're, we're now officially a part of the family. He like, said if it, there's ever a family gathering at Thanksgiving, you'll come and you'll bring your candlesticks. Yeah, like, just candlesticks unpack, but unpack that. Like I can't even imagine what that's like. Like just again talking about your your friendship with him, but your love for him and his work, and just like you're a part of that. Like you were a part of that family. It's a great, that's an incredible thing. It's a, a great privilege, and certainly it started out with that kind of pinch me is this really happening feeling. I mean, he and I, we we met up in Indianapolis. Uh, this was the same trip that Nanny came to. And yeah, she thought it was going to be just her and her dad. And then at the last minute, once she'd arrived in Indianapolis, <laughs> she said, oh, by the way, there's a film crew. And she said, what? Are you kidding? I thought it was you and me. And then, you know, out of that, she and I became lifetime friends. But um, I had flown into Indiana. He had driven. And we drove back together in his car from Indiana back to Manhattan. We drove in shifts, we'd nap and, and drive and did it in one shot. And we laughed so much on that trip. We were just laughing, listening to the radio, listening to things on NPR and commenting on them, just laughing and telling bad jokes and being bawdy and, you know, as boys will be. And um, that was certainly a moment where I thought, how did this happen? Because I grew up just idolizing this guy in high school and college. Now I'm in a car, it was like on the road with Kurt Vonnegut. And we're just two guys laughing and being dopey, driving not halfway across the country, but maybe a third or a quarter. It was quite unbelievable. Are there any other things that stand out to you that maybe didn't make it into the film? Like something that you'll always cherish about your time with Kurt? Well, there's all, there's all kinds of anecdotes. The one thing that was just a funny anecdote is, you know, certainly every time I was in New York, we'd spend time together and he didn't come out to LA that frequently, but he did on occasion. We'd always get together. He'd have dinner here at the house. My wife was a good cook, but he came out to publicize a Showtime had done a bunch of his short stories as as a you know, limited series. And so he was doing this promotional, you know, like a press conference. And I was there in the room with him. So somebody said to him, they said, how do you feel about, you know, films being made from your books? And specifically, how do you feel about Catch-22? Well, of course, Catch-22 was written by Joseph Heller. He's a good friend of <laughs> Kurt's, not his. But people mistake him as the writer of Catch-22 all the time. And um, so he answered the question, you know, very straightforward. He said, well, you know, the books are, remain on the shelves for anyone to read. And good, bad, or indifferent, a movie doesn't change the book. So people are always welcome to look at the book. So he says, I don't feel that invested in what people do with the films. Let them do what they want. And then he pauses. He says, oh, and by the way, Catch-22 was written by Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Which really made me laugh. I think I was the only one in the room laughing who was in on the joke because, you know, most people know these names and they know the titles, but they haven't actually read them. So. <laughs> I just want to say, I, I, I know I read you a message uh, prior to this, but but as a Kurt Vonnegut fan, as a fan of your work, I, I think this is a really, really beautiful gift. And uh, I, I thank you and I thank your entire team for making it. And I think it was well worth the, the six year wait for me, hopefully for you, worth the the years and years, the decades that it took to make it. But thanks. I well, think I just want I just want to put in the thank you. And I did uh, your, your email really touched me. It was it was a. Uh, uh, really terrific um, validation. Oh, that's great. Well, Bob, this has been such an honor. Honestly, if this isn't nice, what is? <laughs> there you go. Well, Kurt's <laughs> up in heaven now, isn't he? That's right. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's his favorite joke. <laughs> 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.